Hello friends, welcome. Always delighted to have you along. And today I'm chatting with author Julia Swig. She has written a singular portrait of a first lady that I feel like many of us don't know that much about, Lady Bird Johnson. Her book is in fact is called Lady Bird Johnson Hiding in Plain Sight. And when you find out more about her, you're probably gonna have some low brain tangle moments. So let's dive in. I'm Sharon McMahon. And welcome to the Sharon Says So podcast. I'm chatting today with Julia Swig, who has written a fascinating portrait of a first lady that I feel like many Americans know very little about. We know a lot more about people like Abigail Adams and Jackie Kennedy, and of course, some of the more recent, recent first ladies. But you've written a fascinating portrait of Lady Bird Johnson. Lady Bird is not the first person I personally would have chosen to write about. In fact, when I was hunting around for my next book topic, and I wrote about foreign policy and diplomatic history and never about first ladies, Mm -hmm. she wouldn't have been my first choice. She was in the White House in the 1960s and married, of course, to Lyndon Johnson, Mm -hmm. who we associate with two big parts of recent American history civil rights Mm -hmm. and the Vietnam War and American protest at home. So three components of the Johnson era. And Lady Bird was his spouse and his political partner for the 30 years before he landed in the White House, which happened when he was vice president to Jack Kennedy when JFK was assassinated in Dallas in November of 63. She was a total political animal as it turns out. I live outside of Washington, D.C., and Washingtonians associate her with daffodils and tulips and the incredible springtime blooms that are associated with what was called beautification. But in fact, she had a huge strategic role to play in the Johnson White House and was a pioneering environmentalist. And I didn't know either of those two things until I discovered how she recorded her own history of her time in the White House. Mm, I'm very excited to hear more about that. Can you give everybody who's listening a little bit more about your background and how you have even stumbled into or how you came upon her recorded history? Sure, my background is as working in foreign policy think tanks in Washington, DC for most of my professional life. I came of age in the Reagan era and became kind of a political animal myself in at the time when American foreign policy was very much on display in Latin America. I am bilingual in Spanish. The having the Spanish language drew me to Latin America. I had a professor in college who was a documentary filmmaker there. He sent a group of us to Cuba. This was at a time when nobody knew anything about Cuba. And my kind of intellectual policy and political interests all congealed around US policy in Latin America. Nothing to do with Lady Bird Johnson, but my first book was a history of the 1950s in Cuba based on Fidel Castro's presidential archive. I was able to kind of disrupt the the received wisdom about who Castro was, but especially how he took power and the women involved in that time in Cuban history. So so I've always been interested in using primary source documents to upheave the the conventional wisdom about something. Mm -hmm. And fast forwarding, got to a certain point where I just didn't wanna be working on the same topics I'd been doing forever. I needed a pivot. And I had worked in a world that was completely gendered, dominated by men and foreign policy in Washington. And I wanted to do some thinking about how women navigate power. And that was the portal that led me to Lady Bird Johnson. And from there, once I discovered that she had recorded 123 hours of tapes about her own experience in the White House tapes that had never been really incorporated into the story about LBJ, right? This is the other LBJ and her tapes. That's what really sealed the deal to me that that I should kind of dive in and and try to figure out her story Mm. and write about it. 
That is a huge undertaking to listen to that much recorded history. Yeah, it, I, I had no idea what I was getting into when I started. And it was definitely the hardest thing that I've ever done because it was time consuming. And I also had to teach myself that history. I'm a historian who can riff forever about Latin America, American foreign policy, but not American politics and history in the 1960s. So I had to teach it to myself, place her in context, fact check her, read all the secondary source material about Lyndon Johnson himself, and then try to make sense of how she fit into all of it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection. Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Where are the tapes? How did you become aware of them? How did you obtain the tapes? These are things that people will want to know for sure. Right. Well, this was kind of luck and right place, right time. And it's now almost 10 years ago, which is kind of shocking. I had embarked upon the search for my new, my next book topic. I knew I wanted to write about women in power. I had lunch with a person who at the time or breakfast or coffee was an editor at my publishing house, Random House, who is himself a presidential historian, John Meacham, mm -hmm. and was talking with him about what my new topic or subject would be. And we didn't really land on anything. And when I was going back to the airport, I looked at my then Blackberry and there was an email that says, you know, Lady Bird kept a diary. Why don't you start there? Because there's a big power story between Lady Bird and Lyndon, I'm thinking, he wrote. So that began, and I went down to the LBJ Library to answer your question in Austin, Texas, the Lyndon Baines Johnson Library and Museum. And it just so happened that they were just finishing the process of releasing the transcriptions of her recording. She recorded in the White House on a reel-to-reel with a microphone and you know, push the buttons herself. And there's great images of her doing this. They were just completing the process of cleaning up the tapes so that they were audible and releasing the full transcripts of all of it. They handed me the DVDs and said, here they are. And it wasn't until a couple of years later that they became fully online. And so if your listeners want to go to the LBJ Library's website, they can easily find the, all of them now and all of their transcripts. And you can see her own handwriting in the margins of the transcripts because in 1970, she published a short, although seven page, 700 page compilation of them. And she did all of the editing and some redacting of it. So it's all there at the library and it was all just coming out when I walked into the museum exhibit on the first floor and heard her voice. And I think, Sharon, that's another incredibly compelling part of this story is listening to her on November 22nd, 1963, mm. Mm. when she is describing her experience of the assassination of JFK 
and her the beginning of this 14-day transition and her relationship with Jackie Kennedy. When you hear Lady Bird's voice and how cogent she was and her penchant for detail and drama and storytelling, it really draws you in. Mm. And that launched my process of spending a year writing the book proposal and getting my arms around the story. Mm. Fascinating. And then, and then six years of writing it. <laughs> People who have never done original works of scholarship have absolutely no idea sometimes how much work goes into it. They think research is Googling. Yes. Well, as a former teacher, you know that it's so much more than that. And I think I was really lucky to be trained as a scholar at a time when you had to go into the stacks and physically mm-hmm. touch material and not rely on whatever comes out from Dr. Google. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We think, well, I've done my research and it involves Googling, clicking on the first three links, skimming some of the things that are you know, at the top of the page. I researched it. Well, one of the things that's actually really cool now is that so much material has been digitized. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. in fact, in the presidential library system or the library of Congress, a lot of material can be accessed through, through the Google. But when I started this, that wasn't quite the case. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right, let's go back in time a little bit. Can you give us a very, very high level brief overview of, first of all, people are curious. They're not familiar with her life. They want to know how she got the name Lady Bird. Right. Well, Lady Bird is the daughter of the South. She grew up on the Texas border with Louisiana and she lost her mother when she was four or five years old. And she was raised by her father and by her nannies who were descendants of enslaved people. And they gave her that nickname and it stuck. And it stuck in t- at times much to her chagrin until the very end of her life. But she kept it, her name, a name which has much more gravitas was Claudia, but she didn't go by Claudia. Although sometimes she said she wished she had. Mm. So she never introduced herself as Claudia. Not that I know. Everyone called her, everyone called her Lady Bird. They called her Lady Bird, or if you were LBJ, you called her Bird. Mm. Mm. And how did she meet Lyndon? It was a setup by one of her best friends. She came to Washington, didn't have time to see him. And then when he was back in Austin, they had breakfast at the Story Driscoll Hotel in Austin and spent the day together. And she was very smart and very, very well read. And he was working as a staffer for a member of Congress at the time. He was in his 20s. She was four years younger. By the end of that first date, he had proposed to her. (gasps) Wow. Right. I mean, you know, LBJ, I always like to say, had a real eye for low ego, brilliant, hardworking people. And he surrounded himself with those people. And she was, I would say, the very first of, of these individuals. She said no to him at the end of that first date. And that triggered about a six week feverish courtship where he was in Washington, DC. She was living at her father's house in Karnak, Texas. And he wrote and he called and they wrote. And there's in fact a whole trove of love letters from this period of time. By the end of six weeks, he showed up at her house And he said, it's now or never. Are you going to marry me? Because this is over if you're not. (laughs) And they drove that day to San Antonio, Texas and got married in a little church. She wore a dress she already had. They didn't even have a ring. It was not quite an elopement as her parents had eloped, but it was very fast. Mm -hmm. And, and, And that began this whirlwind life for her, which was difficult. LBJ was an incredibly difficult individual, but they had a kind of mutual bond at the beginning that, that went on and on and on with many layers of complexity. Mm. In what ways was he difficult? Well, you know, he had kind of a voracious appetite in every way that you could imagine the voracious appetites of political animals in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s. He was not 
loyal to her in terms of the marriage. He had a, affairs outside of the marriage. He had incredibly vast political ambitions. He would, he expected her to be his partner in all ways. And he was also capable of being quite emotionally volatile. I think today we would describe him as having a kind of anxiety, depression continuum. And so not only was he demanding in, in ways of, of her that were more understandable conventionally, but he relied on her increasingly for his own emotional stability. So that, that's just a piece of it. Mm. And that's well before we even get them into the White House. Mm -hmm. How did he end up as Jack Kennedy's running mate? And what did she think of that? That's a wonderful story. And it unfolds in the late 1950s and culminates at the 1960 Democratic Convention in Los Angeles. LBJ had become Senate Majority Leader in 1953. He was a kingmaker in Washington and in the US Senate. For much of the decade, when the Kennedys, Jack and Jackie, came to Washington, DC, they were baby members of Congress. And it was LBJ whom Joe Kennedy, Jack's father, went to at one point and said, why don't you consider my son on your ticket as your vice president going into the 1956 presidential uh, Democratic Party convention. But by 1960, one of Lyndon's weaknesses was that he was very indecisive. He didn't trust his own capacities. He was a bit of a hamlet. And by 1960, had not built a political operation nationwide to compel him into the nomination for the Democratic Party, whereas the Kennedys had done so for Jack. So by the time they get to Los Angeles, there's a moment after Lyndon loses the nomination in the second ballot and Jack wins it, when Jack goes to the Johnson suite and asks if they will consider being his vice president. And I say they, because by then they're very much a they. Lady Bird's initial response is over my dead body. She describes it as a nettle stuck in their throat that they can't swallow and can't spit out. That it's an impossible proposal because they understand that if he gives up his position of power in the Senate and to be the vice president widely recognized as the worst job in American politics, mm -hmm. he'll lose everything. So that's if he says yes. If he says no, it will be seen as disloyal. And once the Democrats are in the White House, it will be the president's legislative agenda, not his, that drives the process in the Congress. It kicks off an incredible period of time when Lady Bird becomes and remains a, a, a very significant political surrogate for both the Kennedys and then of course for LBJ. We have all had embarrassing moments where something didn't smell quite right. And if you have any children or people in your lives who have stinky toes, stinky feet, and those stinky shoes pile up by the door of your house and then when people come over they're like um your house smells weird there's a solution for that and it is not necessarily spraying down your house with disinfecting it is taking care of the smell at the source by using lumi on places like the people in your house's stinky feet it is a whole body deodorant it is safe to use anywhere on your body. It was created by a doctor who saw firsthand how stinky feet and other body parts are often misdiagnosed as problems when in reality you could just use a product like Lumi and it would take care of the issue. It has been clinically proven to block odor all day and control odor for up to 72 hours. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, a cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash and deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code SHARON at lumideodorant.com. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit lumideodorant.com and use code SHARON. 
We hear from a lot of interesting people on this podcast, and I know that I am always hungry for more. And what if you could learn from the world's best all in one place? Guess what? You can. With Masterclass, you can learn from the best to become your best. Masterclass is the only streaming platform where you can learn and grow with over 200 of the world's best instructors. For just $10 a month, an annual membership with Masterclass gets you unlimited access to every instructor. And you can access Masterclass on your phone, your computer, your smart TV, even in audio modes. You can listen to it like a podcast. I know that when I watch Doris Kearns Goodwin, that first of all, I'm going to be getting fantastic information, that the production level is going to be incredible. And then I'm going to walk away feeling smarter and more informed than I was before. Right now, our listeners get an additional 15% off any annual membership at masterclass.com slash Sharon. That's 15% off at masterclass.com slash Sharon. Masterclass.com slash Sharon. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress in our life. Absolutely. It's unavoidable. It's just part of the human experience. But some of us have more than others, and some of us handle it better than others. Some of us really keep it bottled up, and it can start to affect us negatively. I would imagine at some point in your life, you can relate to this, right? And therapy is a safe space to be able to get some of these things off your chest. And that is why so many people find benefit in speaking to a qualified professional. If you're thinking about starting therapy for something like managing your stress, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Sharon today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Sharon. I do want to get to the portion of the book that you, you re- repeatedly refer to Ladybird as a surrogate, but I'd love to chat first about their move to the Naval Observatory. And what was it like for her to essentially step into this higher profile role? LBJ certainly had a lot of power in the Senate, but many Americans don't know the spouses of senators, but they do know the spouse of the president and vice president. What was that transition like for her? She diminishes her capacities always when she's talking about these public roles that she played, but By the time she becomes second lady, she's been in Washington for almost 30 years. So she's kind of dominated the ecosystem that the Senate wives run, for example, as wife of the majority leader. She's the sort of number two in the wives pecking order beneath the first lady. And she has already become kind of a, I mean, an unpaid staffer to LBJ's political operation, going back even to when she ran his office during World War II. Jackie was not so into the ceremonial public aspects of being first lady. Mm -hmm. And just as she had relied on Lady Bird during the campaign to campaign with the Kennedys and for the Kennedys, she also asked Lady Bird to do things all the time. Lady Bird was just a, a woman who showed up and rarely said no. And she had a kind of empathy for Jackie. Mm. All right. Well, let's go then to November of 1963. I would love to hear your description of what Lady Bird had to say about Jack Kennedy's assassination. Lady Bird, for a little bit of context, was a history and journalism major at the Mm. University of Texas in Austin. She was trained to document her life. And she put a very high premium on documenting and on history. And of course, as his as LBJ's political career grew on legacy, she always carried around these tiny little notebooks and she used them to write shorthand, to take notes about what was going on, about who was in the room, phone numbers, information about donors and constituents, you name it. 
-hmm. All those little notebooks are still at the LBJ library, by the way. So when she went to Texas in November of 63, this was for a big political campaign tour by Jack Kennedy. Texas was divided politically and he was planning his second term run and the Johnsons were getting ready to host the Kennedys at the ranch. When Lady Bird went to Dallas with LBJ to greet the the Kennedys on November 22nd, 63, she had one of those notebooks in her purse. She describes the sound of hearing the shots, of being in the car behind the Kennedys, of seeing Jackie Kennedy throw her body over Jack as if in a kind of plume of pink petals. She describes careening toward the hospital, getting out of the car, being rushed into some room. She describes learning finally that the president has died. And then she describes the scene in Air Force One where she goes to find Mrs. Kennedy. Mrs. Kennedy of course is wearing her pink outfit, which is covered in blood as her stockings are. She asks Jackie, do you want to change? And Jackie says, no, I want them to see what they've done to Jack. Jackie is very much aware of how the public is going to take in this moment. And this is of course, where she begins to shape the legacy of Camelot. So keeping the pink suit on with blood is part of that. On Air Force One, after LBJ is inaugurated, Lady Bird is sitting by herself and she takes out her notebook and she starts to take notes about what had happened that day. So that eight days later, when she records her first diary entry of the next five years, she has detail that she can access in order to make it so vivid. Mm, That's fascinating that she had the presence of mind to think to herself, someday I'm going to want this information. I know it's, it's, it's actually magnificent that she had that and that she had the kind of discipline in that incredibly emotional, difficult time to start recording Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in real time. Yes. Did she have feelings of reticence about becoming the first lady? Was she like, I don't want this job. I don't know how to do this job. Well, yes. I mean, she sort of had a classic imposter syndrome. She was used to diminishing her qualities and her capacities. That was how women were socialized, especially very, very bright women and especially women from the South. But, and so she said, and she recorded very often that she was, you know, stepping into a role for which she had no training but she had plenty of training for that role. But she was, you know, she was, I wouldn't say terrified, but highly acutely aware that she couldn't occupy Jackie's shoes, that the state of Texas, her state, was now being held responsible nationally for what had happened to Jack Kennedy, that she and her husband both were derided as culturally subordinate to the Northeasterners that were the Kennedys. Listen, I know if you pick up any kind of beauty magazine or you follow an influencer, there's like a new skincare product every single day of the week. And it can be really difficult to know which ones to even try, like which one is worth your money. And if you're tired of cycling through ineffective skincare trends and overcomplicated routines, you might be excited to know that one of today's sponsors is OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy. No complicated routines just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS1 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to switch off the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. I especially like the eye cream. It's not too thick where you feel like it's going to clog all your pores, but it goes on really, really nicely under makeup. For a limited time, you'll get an exclusive 15% off your first OneSkin purchase using the code SHARON when you check out at oneskin.co. That's O-N-E-S-K-I-N dot C-O. Try OneSkin and enjoy younger, healthier skin without all the extra 
steps. That's oneskin.co code Sharon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You mentioned in the book that she was a surrogate. Did she view herself as a surrogate for Jackie Kennedy? Absolutely. I mean, you know, now that you say that word, I think that word is such a gendered word, but I think I chose it purposefully because, I mean, it's a word that's used on political campaigns all the time, right? Who are the surrogates for presidential candidate acts that we can send out that are going to speak to an issue? But going back to the 1960 campaign, she saw herself as a surrogate, not literally, but, you know, when Jackie was pregnant and prone to miscarriage in 1960 in that campaign, she didn't want to go out and campaign and risk losing another baby. Lady Bird already had hers. They were 10 years in distance. She was 10 years older and she saw her role as stepping in on Jackie's behalf. And she continued to see herself having that role willingly throughout Jackie's exit from the White House. Mm. And what shoes to try to fill? What a woman to try to be a surrogate for and under such extraordinary circumstances? Well, you know, that's where the word surrogate isn't, is kind of imperfect because at a certain point, she was aware that she couldn't possibly fill those shoes, that she wasn't a replica, that she couldn't cut the same figure that Jackie did. And that starts to actually be a source of freedom precisely because they're so different, especially once Jackie leaves the White House, she then has the chance to fully emerge as her own self and and come out from the surrogate role. Mm. What made her start voice recording instead of just taking written notes? You know, um, she had an extremely important collaborator in all of this, and that was Liz Carpenter. And Liz Carpenter was a journalist also from Texas who was part of the Johnson's Texas and Washington world. And Liz came up with the idea of doing it and proposed it to Lady Bird. I don't know that they had some conversation in which they said, you know, this is gonna be an incredible source for historians in the future and we should just do it. But Lady Bird was, also a creature of the media. You know, she was a radio and television executive herself. The Johnsons had acquired a radio and then television station in Austin in the 1930s and 40s. And she felt that she was something of a media maven. So it's not surprising at all to me that she took right away to this multimedia way of recording her own history. And of course, LBJ was recording secretly at the time as well as JFK had, and as Nixon did subsequently. Those 18 minutes of missing tapes <laughs> from and now Nixon. now seven hours. And now we have seven hours and somehow that's fine. Uh, that's no big deal. No. Did she like being the first lady? Did she like living in the White House when she moved into the White House? Was she like a chef and a butler and this beautiful grand home, despite the difficult circumstances that she ascended to that role under? Did she eventually come to enjoy living in the I White House? I think she loved it. I think she was happy to leave when she left. I know that she started counting the days 
many, many months, even years before she actually left. But I think she had a great time, even despite the convulsions in the country. You know, there's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty powerful place to be. And she was a woman who was often in the room. She was not a person who was relegated to choosing China and doing that ceremonial stuff. She was in the Oval Office and in Lyndon's bedroom where he conducted a lot of business all the time. And she was the first first lady, I believe, since Eleanor Roosevelt to really build a cohesive political operation as part of the West Wing's own operation and to knit those two together. I think she was agonized and bereft over the very same things that her husband was, but stimulated by the opportunity at the same time mm. on civil rights, especially, and on the environment. Mm -hmm. I would love to hear more too about her desire for beautification and her work on environmental issues. And you mentioned that Washingtonians know her because of all of these flowers that were planted and park projects. Why did she care so much about that? And can you describe that to people who aren't familiar? Well, beautification is a euphemism for a pretty significant environmental vision that she had. It didn't come about, it, did, it wasn't like she landed in the White House and said, beautification is my thing. But she comes into the White House at a time in the United States when we're just coming off of a period of putting tons of money into building the interstate highway system and into urban renewal programs, which means bulldozing communities in 300 cities around the country and replacing them with these tower and plaza kind of horrible public housing places. Those are both very controversial because both urban renewal and the interstate highway system have huge environmental consequences, negative consequences, primarily for communities of color. So that's by way of context. She's a Washingtonian, as we talked about, and Washington was at the time the largest Black majority city in the country and totally segregated, as it pretty much still is. But segregated in the sense, not just like geographically, but in terms of the distribution of resources. So individuals in the Black neighborhoods, communities in Black neighborhoods in Washington, DC, just didn't have the kind of resources that white neighborhoods did in terms of access to nature, in terms of parks, in terms of swimming pools. She was a person who was a swimmer herself and for whom really in her core, she believed that access to nature was essential to making us feel fully human. So you take all of that kind of high-minded stuff that I just laid out and you think politically at a time when environmentalism wasn't a thing as it is today, how do you start to build public consciousness about the environment? How do you start to bring together access to nature and civil rights? And in Washington, D.C., not only did she decide to use the phrase beautification as kind of a political kabuki theater to conceal a larger environmental agenda, but also to try to start thinking about how to use all this federal space in Washington, D.C. to desegregate it, to make it accessible to Washingtonians who lived right in it and adjacent to it. And I'm not talking about white Washington and the Potomac, I'm talking about black Washington and the Anacostia River, the other river that borders Washington, D.C. Her evolution begins with this kind of ornamental approach, and then it gradually evolves, and she builds these partnerships with landscape architects, environmentalists, civil rights activists, to make Washington, D.C. the kind of test case for other cities around the country, not just with the flowers, but also with putting money and community organizing and federal attention into parks and, and nature in American cities. Mm. So interesting. As we start moving towards the end, you know, so I'm sure many people know, but just for context, LBJ finished JFK's term 
and then runs for re-election, rides some of the wave of public sentiment against the loss of the president, rides into his own elected term as president. Can you talk a little bit more about his, or their, I should say, their decision about whether or not they should pursue staying in Washington or whether they decide to uh, bow out? What was that decision like for them? Right. So we we know, or it is known, that on March 31st, 1968, LBJ surprises pretty much everyone when he announces that he will not run for a second term. Mm -hmm. This is a shocking announcement Mm -hmm. because the assumption in the press and in the country is that nobody walks away from power, not least LBJ. That decision was something that was not a surprise, however, to Lady Bird Johnson, because in May of 1964, just a few months into their term after Kennedy's assassination, with Vietnam looming, with his own kind of perennial insecurity about his capacities as commander in chief, he asks Lady Bird to lay out her thoughts, pros and cons about whether he should run in August of 64. She does that in a strategy memo that I found in the White House, in the library in Austin, ignored by other LBJ historians. She says, yeah, it's too early for you to get out of the arena now, and I don't want to go back to the ranch. You'll be miserable, and so will I. You still have some time, and we still have things to do in the White House. So she says, May 64, let's run. You'll win. And in three years and a handful of months, in February or March of 68, you can announce to the world that you won't be running for a second term. And that's precisely what he does. Mm-hmm. At the time when he makes that announcement, the assumption is it's because of Vietnam and Bobby Kennedy and the the outrage over his presidency as a whole, which is tragic in so many ways. And all of those factors were real, but they had seen already enough of the future to know and worried enough about his health and knew how volatile it was, how, how vulnerable it was that the, the idea for LBJ of getting out while he was still alive took hold and stuck. Mm. And it was Lady Bird who orchestrated that decision and its implementation. Mm. Do you think she regretted it? Oh, no, 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 no. You know, there's these incredible entries from August of 1968. So now they've announced it and the Democratic Party is convention is happening in Chicago, country is going crazy, mm-hmm. Chicago's a mess. Um, there's a big deal around celebrating Lyndon's birthday every year on August 1st, 1968. And it's the time for deciding again comes up because now MLK has been assassinated, Bobby Kennedy has been assassinated. Lyndon's kind of thinking, hmm, maybe they'll bring me back. Maybe I can really pull the country together Mm -hmm. and bring peace to Vietnam. She is adamant. This is not going to happen for this decision is done. She didn't regret it a second. And once she, once the, the, the decision was made public, she was just wrapping things up for the rest of 1968. No intention Mm -hmm. of staying. Mm -hmm. Why do you think she wanted to be done? Why do you think she planned so many years in advance? Be like, we're done after this term. Well, so many years in advance, it was because she wanted to enjoy a post-presidency with her husband while he was still alive. His father had died at 60 and his uncle had died at 60 and he was 56 in 1963. And she wanted to have a life with kids and grandchildren at the ranch with him. Mm-hmm. But then by the time we get to 1968, you know, the whole country has turned against them. She can't get any traction for her environmental agenda. The projects that she started have died on the vine of more guns, less butter, the, the protest movement, the, the pressure, seeing Lyndon withering against it all, it took a huge toll on her. So she was absolutely delighted to get out. Mm. You call the epilogue of your book to survive all assaults. Why did you call it that? Well, she is, I think, constantly 
in awe of her husband's resilience. As much as she is aware of his vulnerabilities, physical, psychological, political, she's also aware that he has this capacity to bounce back. And she describes Lyndon as somebody who's able to survive all assaults. And of course, it's a, used with a little bit of irony there because, or at least some emotional pathos because he doesn't survive for very long once they leave. Mm. He survives for only four years. And in fact, she's the survivor of all assaults. Mm-hmm. She lives for 30 more years after he dies in 1973. Mm. What did she do with her later years after she was no longer the first lady? Well, she was so young, you know, she lived for a very, very long time and she spent so much time with her grandkids and her daughters. She became this much loved grandmother, but she also spent time on those key legacy issues that she had started in the White House on the environment. She was on the board of National Geographic and she put her political capital and some financial capital into making Austin, Texas as green as it is today with access to swimming and access to nature, kind of the idea she had for Washington, DC. She built the LBJ library and school. She was very, very active in the creating and solidifying the institution of the LBJ library. It was her decision in 1993, I believe it was, to release all of those LBJ tapes that have been so vital to historians being able to understand the LBJ White House. She was deeply involved in the Johnson legacy and and she also rekindled her relationship with Jackie Kennedy, which is another piece of the story that I wish I had been able to, to continue, but it's an important long arc that the two of them had together. In the 1980s, they spent a day together every summer in Martha's Vineyard. And Lady Bird went to New York for Jackie's funeral when she died. Mm, mm. I love the epilogue so much because it describes the transfer of power from LBJ to Nixon. And specifically her role. And I love your descriptions about how both of these women are, they're wearing fur hats and, you know, the the description of what it was like for the women who were participating in this, you know, very momentous occasion and how she kind of had to hold together for how nervous Pat Nixon was, et cetera. It's such a chilly moment. It's a chilly moment between Pat and Lady Bird, isn't it? It is. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. And that moment before when they leave the White House, I mean, I would like to see that depicted cinematically to tell you the truth. And down the road, I'll put you in touch with the woman that's writing the Pat Nixon biography. She's Mm. got some great stuff. There were some quotes too, where I can see how you can see how Lady Bird would have bristled at things that Nixon said, like you you say here, nine months later, standing amongst among the ancient trees, and you're referring to Redwood National Park. President Nixon delivered a speech placing Lady Bird in the long line of presidential conservationists that began with Teddy Roosevelt. A tree is a tree. How many trees do you need? <laughs> and I can imagine her just being like, ah. Uh. <laughs> She was very gracious and she played a huge role in creating the Redwood National Park. She was, by the time you got to the end of 1968, very strongly out of the closet in terms of leaving beautification, that euphemism behind and having her staff instruct journalists not to use the word anymore to Mm. having them talk about her environmental and her conservation agenda. So having Richard Nixon sort of benefit from it, but also poo-poo it at the same time must have just caused her (laughs) to tell herself some pretty arch comments internally. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I can only Mm -hmm. imagine, yes. What would you love the reader to take away from her story and take away from your book? If you could have your druthers, what would you love for somebody to have learned or to take away? I think it's very easy to underestimate public figures, especially women. And the takeaway for me is 
that all of us, whatever our gender, really need to record our own history. I mean, this was to me such an incredible act of public service that she undertook in building the library and collecting all the material, but in recording her own story. And I worry now that public figures today in the White House say, maybe Jill Biden, I'm not sure what Michelle Obama did, although I know she gave some oral histories. I really worry today that the world of social media and leaks and digital communication has vastly undermined the ability for public figures to find a way to document their own stories. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it's only public figures. You know, I really, I know it sounds a little cliche, but everyone should do it because we're making our own history as we go. And it's impossible for us to see in the moment its significance. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's so cool about Lady Bird. I mean, obviously she knew she was living these incredible times, but she carried that meta awareness with her from the time she was in college. Well, Julia Swig, thank you so much for this. Your book is called Lady Bird Johnson, Hiding in Plain Sight. And what a fascinating woman and a fascinating portrait of her. Well, thank you for a wonderful conversation and for reading the book so carefully. I'm very grateful and happy to be here with you, Sharon. Yes, I learned so much. I truly did. I learned so much. If you want to better understand the 1960s, you want to better understand the presidency, first ladyship, this is a fantastic read. Oh, I'm really grateful to hear you say that. Thank you so much. Great My to pleasure. meet you. Thank you so much for listening to the Sharon Says So podcast. I am truly grateful for you. And I'm wondering if you could do me a quick favor. Would you be willing to follow or subscribe to this podcast or maybe leave me a rating or a review? Or if you're feeling extra generous, would you share this episode on your Instagram stories or with a friend? All of those things help podcasters out so much. This podcast was written and researched by Sharon McMahon and Heather Jackson. It was produced by Heather Jackson, edited and mixed by our audio producer, Jenny Snyder, and hosted by me, Sharon McMahon. I'll see you next time.